Thank you for joining us. I'm JT Angstrom with Freight Waves here with Paul Asel of NGP Capital. Paul, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here with you today, T. It's a pleasure to see you. It's been some time, but it's always great to have you uh, join us. It is. So we enjoyed having you speak at our World of Connections last November, and that seems like uh, a century ago. Right. That's 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 correct. That was was that November. I, I remember I was with Andy Clark and we were in San Francisco uh, in a wonderful event venue and a phenomenal uh, conference you hosted. And I, I guess that is less than a year ago. That does seem like forever ago. But that was a tremendous event you hosted. Thank you so much for having us. And you're still in California now. We hope everyone's safe and doing well with some of the issues going on over there. Uh, we, we have been sheltering in place here like most people have for the last six months. And, uh, but but uh, what we found is that at least in a micro sense, we are as productive uh, from home as we are in the office. But we appreciate that uh, that's not true for most. And so we're eager to get back to work as soon as the situation permits. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you have a wealth of background in the early stage space investing. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience both domestically and international and not just allocating capital, but also being a mentor to executives and helping them grow businesses and see successful growth uh, throughout various stages? I've been investing in venture and uh, doing that on a global stage really for most of the last uh, 30 years and uh, started investing in Silicon Valley and and then uh, um, worked in emerging markets for uh, several years. And, and then about 15 years ago, I uh, founded NGP Capital. Uh, we have uh, a, a global perspective investing from uh, Europe, China, and the United States. Uh, when I started in Silicon Valley, we used to have the two bridge rule, which uh, bridge rule, which meant that uh, if, if you cross a bridge, uh, that's a bridge too far. Now we have the two-flight rule. Anything that's within two flights is fair game. But I think what part of the, the, the message behind that is that technology used to be a, a cottage industry. It's now a global industry, and we are seeing uh, technology centers uh, and innovation emerging from around the world. Uh, when I first started investing in China back in 2008, uh, we uh, the, the common mantra from the entrepreneur was, uh, you know, we are the ABC company of XYZ business in the United States. And quite predictably, when a new company emerged in the U.S., within two or three months, we would see the equivalent of that in China. That, that stopped about 2012. And what we heard here when we invest in China is, you know, here's the local problem. And here's what we're looking to solve. So we're, we've seen indigenous in innovation emerge from, from Europe, from China, and the United States. And I think that makes it a much more interesting place to invest because we're seeing great ideas come from all around the world. Yeah, that's tremendous. And now transportation means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? And traditionally, when I talk about transportation, I'm thinking of freight, but recognizing there's also passenger. And within both of those buckets, there's a lot of different modes. When you think about transportation, specifically with, with your focus, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, where you have focused your, your most time historically, but also kind of what do you find most interesting, which may not necessarily overlap one-to-one? I, I think of logistics as the movement of people, places, and things. And, and that's 
perhaps a, a bit unusual. It sounds like it's more investing in nouns than it is in logistics. But uh, when when we the, the more we've thought about it, uh, of course, there's the movement of things. The movement of people uh, has as as much logistical elements to that in many types of businesses as uh, the movement of things. And and then when we think about it in a, a more macro sense, uh, it's about places as well. Uh, in the short term, you can think about places being fixed, but in the slightly longer term. Those things are, are transferable as well. And one of the things that we've learned investing in logistics is that the, the most value is not from the nodes, but from the flow. And, and if you can change flow by changing location and optimize around that, there's tremendous value that can come in not only optimizing from A to B, but how things move multi, multimodally uh, across that whole chain. Yeah, that's remarkable. And we certainly see a lot of multimodal mix shifting opportunity in the spaces I focus on. And that is a uh, pretty significant discussion topic amongst certainly 3PLs, but also in-house logisticians for shippers and thinking through not just sourcing capacity better within a given mode, but also how can we use alternative modes to uh, move move uh, given elements of freight, you know, again, specifically for me, but recognizing but that's equally relevant for passenger as well. As we think about some thematic trends in venture investing, can we talk a little bit about first, in your decades of experience, what you've seen as, as perhaps any philosophical shifts with allocating capital, whether it be capital structuring or valuation metrics or uh, willingness to take on risk? And then I think we can use that to parlay pretty well into a conversation around uh, investment themes around specific assets or specific asset classes? The fundamentals of venture are, are the same as before. Uh, the, one of the things that has changed is the magnitude of venture. And, and so when, when I started the NDS 30 years ago, a, a large uh, investment at a Series A stage might be a million dollars, and now it's probably 10x that. When we look at the size of funds, it, they, they've moved 5 to 10x over that period of time. I think there's a couple reasons for that. And, and then there are also implications as to uh, how venture investors can invest with that. And one of the things that, that we are, are seeing is uh, we, we have, over the 15 years since I founded uh, NGP Capital, we've moved from a mobile-first world to a data-first world. Uh, so really, the first 10 years, we were investing around the mobile phone and helping companies move onto the phone and creating businesses that were mobile indigenous. For the last uh, five years or more, we've been investing in data-first companies, the belief that everything and everyone will transmit a signal, that intelligence turns signal into noise, and We've seen that the internet affected 15% of GDP. And as McKinsey said, the internet of things is going to disrupt the other 85%. So when we look at the growth of venture capital, I think we're seeing a couple of fundamental things. So one is the expansion of the, the, the field of play. And 10 years ago, logistics was out of play for uh, venture capital. But, but with the amount of capital that we have with a move to the data first world, been, uh, in the uh, logistics industries in play. 
85% of GDP is in play. So that's what one of the reasons that we're seeing the expansion of venture capital. We're simply playing on a larger field. The, the second reason we're seeing the growth of venture capital is that we're moving from enabling investments to disrupting investments. For the first 20, 30 years of, of venture capital, it was largely about enabling uh, existing industries, but selling software into industries. Now we've got the capital to be able to go out and fundamentally rethink industries to disrupt industries. And so that creates a much larger purview. We're playing on a larger field, and we've got different ways of playing than we did, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's a tremendous perspective. And, and when you think about venture investing from a data-first perspective, that certainly hits home with a lot of things we do here um, at Freight Waves. And so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on peeling that onion back a little bit in terms of where you see some significant opportunities from a sector or macro level um, within the transportation space and how you foresee the ability to leverage either existing data or uh, perhaps data that does not yet exist, but perhaps could through alternative mechanisms. I've been investing in and around logistics for the last eight years and uh, really around uh, location uh, location-based assets uh, together with uh, groups like uh, HERE Technologies for the last 15 years. And, and over that time, I think we have seen a fundamental shift. You know, uh, you know 10, 15 uh, years ago, we were largely, it was more of a point tool solution selling into the, uh, the freight industry. And now we're seeing some very interesting companies emerge that are, are looking to disrupt uh, different segments of the industry. And, and then we're seeing uh, tremendous uh, use of, of data to apply uh, logistics and efficiencies in, in different ways. So if I, I go back to the initial analogy, I used uh, flow versus nodes. Um, we, we invested about five years ago in um, Select, which was uh, with a PH, uh, the, uh, a, a professor from MIT who was looking at uh, supply chain optimization, and and he uh, was looking both at at uh, uh, return logistics and and logistics uh, to the stores, and fundamentally thinking about how do we optimize the the placement of of goods, and and rather than returning all the way back to source, are there different ways we can can use that, um, and and that was something we couldn't have done 15 years ago, but based on the the wealth of data that that uh, we have, we were able to apply that intelligence in different ways and uh, select uh, very promising technologies. And uh, it got bought very quickly within about two years of our investing uh, by Nike, who wanted to really adopt that into really change their their whole uh, logistics industry. A, a company that we invested in recently is a, a, a business in in Europe called Shipeo which is in the transparency space. And we invested in the company pre-COVID, and, and uh, I think we've seen that uh, that is a, a sector whose time has come. Of course, we've seen uh, Fork Heights and uh, Platform 44 do some very interesting things here in the U.S. and Chapeo's uh, in an analogous space. And one of the things we've seen in, in the um, logistics industry in the last uh, six months is a move from a kind of unifaceted or a narrow view of efficiency to a broader view of, of resiliency. So for the last 20 years, the, the emphasis has been really on cutting costs to be more efficient. 
Um, but but now a recognition that that part of that efficiency involves flexibility to be able to adjust in real time to to shocks like this and having transparency uh, that's provided by some of those companies becomes very important and being able to look across the whole supply chain, not just one segment of that, um, to be able to optimize the, the flow of goods. And, and we see a, a lot more technology coming in to be able to, to bring in multimodal efficiencies uh, uh, both now and going forward. Yeah, that's a tremendous overview of some things you've seen in the market. And I think what would be interesting for uh, various members of the audience to hear is, as founders develop their thesis or their hypothesis on the market and developing their value proposition statement for, the, for building out the foundations of growing a venture stage company, as they approach you, um, what, what are some core tokens of advice you would, you would give to these early stage founders as they're thinking through what should the model be? How do we accomplish it? How do we appropriately, but perhaps not overcapitalize? How do we think about acquiring talent? Um, how do we think about being deliberate with de deploying that capital with talent, with technology, with all of the required resources? I think given your wealth of experience, some sage wisdom would be uh, certainly valuable to them, but also to the audience. Well, well we, we all are a product of our experience in different ways. So one of the things that uh, I've done uh, just here over the summer, we've had a uh, a slower time. They say that uh, races are in sailing. Races are won and uh, um, night and, and and still win. So how do we use this still win as an opportunity to rethink things slightly? And one of the things we did is we we went through our entire portfolio of a uh, hundred companies and we we looked for patterns and we we found a couple of interesting things that came from that. Uh, one is that. Uh, uh, I think there's a perception that uh, industry experience is is very important, and and while we can't discount that, we have found that disruption happens from outside the industry, and and quite frequently it's the people that it, the, that incremental innovation happens best inside the industry, but disruptive innovation happens best from outside the industry. It's people who can come in with a different perspective, a different set of experiences, and then apply that to the situation. So, so we think a little bit differently about experience. Uh, we, we think of uh, ex the value of experience is uh, you know, fundamental principles, uh, business savvy, uh, knowing how to succeed in different scenarios, not necessarily the main experience within that industry itself. The other thing we found is the importance of having a complete team. Uh, we, we uh, you know, it's just kind of natural behavioral economics that we all get excited about a great promoter. Um, but it's a, what we found is that when a great promoter lines up with the uh, and has uh, inherently within his or her team the skill sets that are aligned with the key success factors of an industry then having promotional skills increases the likelihood of success. On the other hand, if you have a great promoter, but the skill sets are not well aligned with the key success factors of the industry, that actually strong promotional skills can work against you. So I think we've developed a more nuanced view. Uh, what does that mean for 
uh, entrepreneurs as they're thinking about opportunity. The first is if you've got a great idea and if you're passionate about it, don't be daunted about the lack of industry experience. Bring some people around you. Bring advisors around you who can, we, we like to call them jungle guides, who can tell you uh, where you might be going wrong from an industry point of view. But don't be daunted about going into a new space if you fundamentally believe you've got a different way of playing things. And then the second thing is, be, at the same time, be humble about uh, what, what are the skills and, that you're going to need to be successful how do you surround yourself with the right people to give yourself the best chance of success? Yeah, that's tremendous advice. Um, that's phenomenal advice, uh, actually. And, you know, it's interesting to hear uh, your perspective, not just individually, but as you've assessed your current and historical portfolio as key themes um, and, and perhaps finding some counterintuitive uh, success factors, um, which, you know, might may not be obvious to uh, uh, the traditional uh, interpretation mechanisms. I, I'd, I, one question that comes to mind is, um, as you think about early stages, so coming off ground, so you've now launched from the idea phase, you've built out your advisors, you're thinking through how to implement a thesis, what are some of the core steps that are absolutely critical in the, in the kind of one, two, three step early phase stage in terms of taking an idea and putting it into implementation? JT, that's a great question. And, and uh, it's, it's one that uh, we, we've actually thought a lot about uh, in the last year. We, uh, you know, really, as, as part of that analysis, we, we've uh, long talked about uh, us being investors that are post-product market fit. Uh, and, and so we are investing in companies that have a, a product that's out on the market that has referenceable customers, and those customers are validating the technology and the business model. And that, that's what we've said for 15 years. Uh, as we've gotten further into it, we, we thought that everyone in our team understood what product market fit meant. And, and then as we actually did some further research on this, so we, we all had slightly different definitions of that. And as we parsed through those and we, we came to a common framework on what product market fit means, and we also went back a lot to looking at how the industry defines that. Well, one of the things we found is that there's no single definition of product market fit. In fact, there are multiple definitions. And we came up with uh, three different layers. Uh, there's, there's weak, moderate, and strong product market fit. The, the, the weak uh, definition is around product. Uh, do you have a product that works? Is there basic demand in the market? Uh, the second, the, the moderate, is being able to show that that demand is beyond early adopters, that that is demand that, that, that works at scale. And then the third level is, is proving that the unit economics can work and, and, and getting that to work at scale. So as you think about building a business, you can think about it in those phases. And, and one of the things we found in working with uh, hundreds of companies over the last 15 years is that companies don't skip steps. There is a fairly systematic way that one goes through, through that. And yes, there are themes and variations by, by industries and market segments, uh, but, but fundamentally going from weak to moderate to strong product market fit and there are different elements within that. 
is something that we've seen as being a fairly serial progression that companies need to make. That's tremendous, Paul. Well, with that, I think we could go on for another 20 minutes, but unfortunately, we're out of, we're out of time. Uh, Paul Asel, NGP Capital, thank you so much for your time. I'm JT Angstrom with Freight Waves.